Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Warm out the age, sleep well, sleep with time. Still silvery dreams of the deathless child. Heard all ago on the news, wandering souls who then refreshed once more and then by Well, you may think that at this time of year, you have heard just about every Christmas carol that is out there and multiple times by every artist under the sun. But you know what? That would not be the case. Take what we just heard right there. We are still discovering new Christmas carols all the time. And that one has recently been, well, let's say recovered from back in 1933. It's quite a story, actually, and we're going to hear about it now. From Dr. Tegwin Roberts, from Barnsley Museum's Elskar Heritage Action Zone Officer, which is also quite the title. Tegwin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, tell me about this process. How do you recover a lost Christmas carol? Well, this was quite by chance, actually. So um, I work for Barnsley Museum, and Barnsley Town Hall is uh, 90 years old this month. It was opened in December 1933. So we uh, were going through the archives, um, and particularly the Barnsley Chronicle archives, so that's our local newspaper, looking for articles about the opening of the town hall. And just by chance, we came across this carol that the paper had published in 1933 by a Barnsley man for Barnsley people to sing that Christmas. And it was published in the paper with the words and the full score, which is amazing. So um, my colleague uh, knows I'm in, I work for museums, but in my other hat, I am a singer and an enthusiastic carol singer. And he said, I think you'll like this. And I took it home and I learned the tune and it's so beautiful. We just thought, well, we have to record it and we have to um, share it with, with people in Barnsley this Christmas. So yeah, we recorded a quick version in the town hall um, and put it out on a, sort of a YouTube video with pictures of Barnsley at Christmas. Um, from Barnsley Archives. Oh, that's and it's beautiful. just incredibly popular. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. How does something like that, do you think, fall out of popularity? I mean, if it was so beautiful, why didn't it catch on? Well, it's possible that it was sung. I mean, we have a real, um, a really deep caroling tradition in South Yorkshire. I don't know if your listeners know, but um, we, we were really lucky that carols that are hundreds of years old are still sung around Barnsley and Sheffield in South Yorkshire um, at Christmas time. But they're sung in an oral tradition, so they aren't necessarily written down. Um, and possibly this one was sung and then you know, fell out of use or fell out of interest or whatever, and it's just been forgotten. Um, and we're just really lucky that this published version survives in the archives, that we can, um, we can see how it was meant to sound. And what do we know about how this came to be? Or what, was, what is so special about this? Who wrote this? Uh, it was written by a guy called Arthur Godfrey, who was a Barnsley man, um, not to be uh, confused with the American broadcaster Arthur Godfrey, there is another one, but this Arthur Godfrey was born in Barnsley in the 1870s. He was a glass bottle maker, he wasn't a professional musician. Um, we've got 
a few records of him. Uh, there's not an awful lot. We thought we'd find more, and we're hoping we will find more in the future. But in the 1921 census, he's living in Barnsley Town Centre with his wife and his seven children. Um, and obviously, he was also an accomplished musician and wrote this piece for the paper. What a lovely idea. So do you think there are others like this out there that may have been forgotten? Yeah, um, I, I, yes, I, I absolutely do. And I, I really hope that some of them come to light because it's just you know, the joy of being able to um, bring back to life a song from the archives, an old song. Uh, it's, just, it's just so special. Now, you mentioned Barnsley's kind of tradition and history of, of caroling and singing these songs. How did that come about? Um, well... Well, we just, I think we're really lucky that, that you know, carols have been sung for hundreds of years. And a few hundred years ago, there would have been all sorts of different versions of the carols that we, we sort of know and love, but get sung all the time. They started to get fixed from the 1830s. There was a national carol book that was published. Um, and a lot of the variations sort of fell out of use, fell out of fashion. And we're just lucky that in this area, um, they continue to be sung by local people, quite often in the pub, um, and they still do. And we've got this amazing tradition of people getting together at Christmas and singing these local carols. And some of them were written by local people and added to the, the collection. Um, yeah, so we've just got this lovely, lovely tradition of coming together and singing. Now, do you, does it make you want to go back through other editions of the newspaper to see if there were other carols, perhaps, that were forgotten? We did. We had a look through the years either side, and we didn't find one. So 1933 was obviously a special year. Um, but yeah, absolutely. If we had more time, we would definitely be spending more time looking for them. And you know, hopefully, if people do find them, um, they'll they'll do their own versions, and we'll get to hear about them. Right. Why was 1933 a special year? Was there something going on in Barnsley? Well, we were. The, the, the new town hall was being opened, so. The 1930s was quite a tough time for people. There was a depression. And, right. Um, but in Barnsley, they invested in this big new town hall, um, which created work for local people and created a centrepiece of the town, you know, to just sort of show that ongoing civic pride. Um, so it was a big deal. Um, and they, the Prince of Wales came to open the town hall, later became the king. Um, so it was a, yeah, there was a lot going on in Barnsley in December 1933. Well, that does sound like a big deal. So, Tegwin, where can the rest of us hear hear this or even learn this song? So the Barnsley Museums, we have a YouTube channel. Um, so if you look at Barnsley Museums on YouTube, uh, there's a video on there with the carol. You can also visit the Barnsley Museums blog site to find out more about the history. And on the site, we've published the words and the score to the carol as well, so people can use those to to create their own version. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us to tell us a story this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. It's amazing that we've got so much interest from across the world um, in, in our Barnsley Carol, and we're just so excited to be able to share it with people. Well, thank you so much. That's Dr. Tegwin Roberts with us from Barnsley Museum's Elskar Heritage Action, the zone officer for them. You could check out this new Christmas carol. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking a bit this morning about how there is, yes, one week left before Christmas. You've still got some shopping days there in case you need them. And I want to mention, we've been talking about, you know, great things that we've been doing. My house, we've started doing this $20 and under thing for everybody in the house. So everybody gets a gift, but we're keeping it to a very strict budget this year. And Denise emailed me 
to say, could you please share where you found these wonderful $20 and under gifts was at one particular store. Uh, A couple stores, though, Denise, I'd have to give the shout out here to London Drugs because I found quite a few amazing things there at London Drugs. So I highly recommend checking them out. They got a ton of stuff, $20 and under right now. And we had so much fun finding it. So check that out for sure. I also like making gifts for people too. In fact, this year I'm going to be making multiple batches of English toffee to give out. It's an absolute killer. I know people are going to hate me for it because it's so good and you can't stop eating it. But making gifts is also a wonderful thing to do. But I think I'm going to give something completely new a try too. And that is where our next guest comes in. Marie Rayma is a Calgary-based creator of a popular blog and YouTube channel. It's called Humble Bee and Me. And she teaches hundreds of thousands of her followers how to create everything from, you know, body butters and lip balms to lotions, all sorts of skincare. And I thought, well, I I can learn how to do this too, right? That is why we have Marie Rayma with us now. Marie, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. How did you get started doing this? Oh, honestly, I ran out of lip balm when I was in university and looked at that tiny little tube and looked at the price tag and was like, surely, surely I can do this myself instead of spending like $7 on another tube of lip balm. And it's just been you know, sort of a black hole, an obsession ever since. Yeah, you fell down that rabbit hole, didn't you? Okay, so <laughs> so what is it that you make? What are some of the most popular things? Well, I love making a lot of lotions and emulsions. This time of year is so dry, especially in Alberta, that a really good hand lotion is just a gorgeous thing. But perhaps not the best place to start if you've never made anything before. So if you're a brand new, kind of into dipping your toes into the DIY world, I've got a couple of really great easy ideas that you can whip up and get the ingredients for in a week. All right. Give me the easiest. What do you got? Okay. So if you've ever been to Sephora, checked out their skincare section. So expensive, Marie. So expensive. (laughs) So one of the products in there is 50 milliliters of argan oil, which is this beautiful single ingredient oil from Morocco. It's been used there for hair care and skincare for centuries. 50 milliliters is 66 Canadian dollars at Sephora. Or in the Vancouver area, you've got this great store that you can go to. You can order online, but we're a little short on time, so you might want to actually just go there. It's called Voyager Soap and Candle. They're out in Surrey. They sell 125 mils of pure argan oil, so more than twice as much, for just $14. I'm sorry, what? Right? (laughs) That's crazy. It's a hack. Especially, like, heck, even just for you, you don't have to gift this. You can just start buying your argan oil from them. But you can go there, buy some cute little bottles as well, repackage the argan oil, put a cute little handmade label on it, and there you go. Like, what an easy gift idea. Okay, that is a great one. But what if I want to make something? Okay, so if you actually want to make something, lip balm is my absolute go-to for last minute. It's a product that most people use already. So you can just kind of give them an even better handmade version. They don't really need like a tutorial on what to do with it. It's also something people lose all the time. So they can usually usually always need another tube. Uh, And yeah, you can get all the ingredients locally in Vancouver before time runs out. So my favorite recipe for this like last minute time period, I call it my naked lip balm because it gets all of its scent just from the ingredients in it. So you'll need uh, 10 grams of beeswax and I recommend raw unrefined beeswax. It smells like honey. So that's where part of the scent comes from. 
and then 12 grams of coconut oil. So I like virgin coconut oil again for that coconutty scent. It goes so well with the honey. And if you already have coconut oil in your kitchen, you can just use that. Uh, seven grams of cocoa butter. And I recommend unrefined cocoa butter for this really lovely chocolatey scent. And then we get honey, coconut, and cocoa. And it's almost a little that reminiscent of a, like an Nanaimo bar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you can pick up cocoa butter a lot of time in the baking section of grocery stores if you're going to pass your time. And then the last ingredient is just 21 grams of a light liquid oil. So something like sunflower oil or almond oil. I would avoid olive oil. Something that's going to have kind of its own flavors like Olive Nanaimo bars don't sound great to no, me, but you not know, quite. Yeah. <laughs> you do you. And then really, you're just going to melt all that together. I recommend using a one cup glass Pyrex measuring cup because that pouring spout is really, really helpful. I like to melt it together in a water bath. Once it's melted, give it a quick stir, pour it into some lip balm tubes, and you can get those at Voyager or even honestly on Amazon. Uh, let them set up, and that is that is literally it. Okay, the problem with this is that you're showing us how easy it is to make some of this, and then you're going to look at the lip balms and things that you have in the store and go, why? Why was I doing that? Why was I paying for that before? Yes, no, I, I am sorry. I have opened up that wormhole for you. Really you will have. absolutely do that. You really have. Do you think it's something, it's extra special when you can make something like this? I really think it is. I, I have... Like, I absolutely love it when I hear from friends and family, like, I use that lip balm you gave me all the time. It's my favorite lip balm. Just that, that, just that heartwarming joy, knowing that you created something that's just making your friends and family's lives a little, just a little bit better every day. They're having this little moment of joy and thinking of you whenever they use it. And then also maybe you can bring them into the DIY fold and they too can stop spending $7. On oh, you want everybody to go down the rabbit hole with you. Um, yes, let yes, me ask you company. about essential oils because I feel like essential oils are really popular, but we have to be careful with those, right? Yeah, they definitely are very, very popular, but they're also very potent. You know, we take a large amount of plant matter and then concentrate that down into a tiny, tiny little bottle. And so they are lovely and fragrant and potent but they can it can be easy to use too much and each essential oil has its own different safe usage level so if you are newer to working with essential oils i would recommend that you know this last minute before christmas time is probably not the time to start delving into that level of research so we get that gorgeous scent in the lip balm from the ingredients right. and uh yeah that's something something maybe for like next year when you've got a little bit more time and a little yeah. bit more uh, yeah i love this idea okay so if people have any questions and you know where can they find you so I made a, uh, I put the oldest in an email. So if you go to humblebeeandme.com slash gifts, drop your email in there and I'll email all of this to you along with like the full recipe, links to places to buy all the ingredients. And you can just find me at humblebeeandme.com and humblebeeandme on YouTube. Well, this is fantastic. Uh, Marie, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's been great. This is Mornings with Simi. Every week, it seems like there's another name to add to the list, another restaurant that's been around for years and years closing its doors. Maybe another restaurant will replace it, but you know what? Maybe not, too. We wanted to talk about how this is impacting communities at large and really what is going on in the industry right now. So Ian Tossenson is with us, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning, Ian. Morning, Simi. Welcome back. We missed you. Oh, thank you so much. So <laughs> tell me, when we look at what's happening out there in the restaurant industry, have you seen it like this ever before? 
No, I think it's the worst uh, semi that we've seen, and it's the culmination of so many uh, months uh, during, you know, I hate to talk about the pandemic, but, you know, you look at, you know, there are months and months and months where there's no money where it's made and there's no ability to sort of um, to get ahead financially. And then, you know, we came back and business was good, but then we got hit with inflation and labor shortages and everything we got thrown at us. And the good thing is, is that we haven't necessarily lost the consumer. We've cha- the, the consumer spending habits have changed. So we're seeing more people doing, you know, appetizers and happy hour, but at least they're coming out and, you know, we're being supported in Vancouver, particularly with, you know, sporting events and concerts that help. But, you know, generally it's, it's a non-profitable business. Restaurants Canada reported that, you know, 50% of the restaurants in British Columbia are either losing money or breaking even. And so you're seeing a lot of restaurants, particularly small ones that tend to be kind of family operations, they're just up against it. Either they might be needing, uh, asking to renew their lease, they don't want to do that, or the lease went up and it doesn't make any financial sense. Finch's restaurant is a great example. Um, last week, um, the sandwich place, um, they've been in business for 20 years, and I spoke to the owner, and she's very open about it. She's doing a crowdsource funding to try to pay back the debt that she has, which is about $90,000, which is you know accumulated debt during the pandemic, plus the SIBO loan that she owes. So it's, it's tough out there. It, it really is. And that's yeah. why you're seeing a lot of the small businesses folding. And you talked about, okay, so in, if you're in the major city, if you're in Vancouver, sure, you get the games, right? You've got sporting yeah. events, you've got concerts. But if you're in the suburbs and you're yeah. a neighborhood restaurant in, is, and that changes the fabric of a community when a restaurant that's been around for a very long time just disappears. Yeah, I was thinking about this when, when I got the call last night, and, I, and I, I read some really interesting articles about this. And they talk about restaurants on a, an entirely different way. I've never even thought about them, but they, are, they're, they call things like a third place, which is a place that is not your home and it's not your work. It's a third place. And then you look at what it brings to the community is a sense of togetherness. It brings a sense of community. It gets, allows people to get together. And these are generally the, in the, the, the little communal places in smaller communities. And often in smaller communities, those are, those are the only places that people can gather. So we've, we've become this place of gathering, a little micro community. And then I, I came across, you know, for elderly people, they like to go for a walk and maybe go to McDonald's. It's, it's, it's socialization for them. Or there's a restaurant in Boston that, that serves specific populations for this one, uh, blind and the visually impaired. So there's all these social elements to restaurants that are so important. It's not just about food. It's about sharing a conversation, seeing your neighbors, you know, or, or listening, overhearing somebody saying they have a couch for sale, and you're going, yeah, I've got one, you know, all those different things. And mm-hmm. it's really sad to see that these smaller restaurants, are, which, which serve that socialization, um, are failing. And they're failing just because the economics are not in their favor at all. So are people, would you say, perhaps leaving the industry and saying, you know what, I, I can't do this anymore? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think when they're sort of aging out in the sense of been doing this for a long time, um, you know, I'm not getting ahead. In fact, it's cost me money. So what's the point of doing this? Now, you're right. You, you mentioned you get a, you know, you, so for every restaurant that, that closes, seemingly another one opens. But well, you might on get one that opens, not necessarily, though. That's right. They come in a little bit different, you know, focus, maybe more sort of focal, specialized in the food. Their cost structure is lower. You're seeing most, you know, when you see restaurants now, they tend to be smaller and more efficient and requiring less labor and more technology than sort of established restaurants.
And so there always will be a restaurant industry, but boy, I tell you right now, Cindy, we just, we were, we're just working in a project to put to government and we, we're, we're going to do this. We haven't announced this yet, but hey, drum roll. It's a menu of issues that this industry has, and we're going to do it in the form of a menu. And we've, we're literally like probably 125 to 150 things that a restaurant needs to be aware of, do, or is being bothered by every single day. It's so regulated. And, you know, and this, the danger is that so many of these small restaurants in particular do not have the resources to chase up government regulations and all the different things that are going on. They're just, you know, I talked to a, a, an owner of a restaurant on Lonsdale last week, and I said, how are you doing? He goes, I'm now the owner and the head chef. Oh, boy. And the head waiter. And he has no other time in his life. And that's pretty typical of, of most of the smaller businesses. That's also not why a lot of people want to get in the business, though, is it? Maybe they want to be the mad. They're good at the business part of it, but they're not good at the, the cooking part of it. They just like being in the industry. Oh, there's a lot of people in the industry. They sort of do it and they they don't get ahead economically. They just love it so much because of the people effect of it. They, they really do. And uh, the socialization. But you're right. Um, some, you know... Um, they come in with an idea. It's a, they're, they're tricky businesses to run. Like if anybody's thinking about getting a restaurant, really do your research because it, they're very technical, tricky businesses to make a profit with. Is this perhaps a generational change, a generational shift? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the industry was never built to have this much uncertainty and change so quickly. It was a very steady industry. I mean, I remember being in the wine industry and restaurants were our business. And it was just so predictable and, you know, and, yeah. and nothing was neither here nor there. It just was there. But now it's, it's the, uh, it's all these different issues. Like I said, labor and prices going up and the consumer changing and shifting the patterns of you eating at home or maybe going to yeah. a restaurant. So um, it's interesting. I mean, we'll come out of this, but um, boy, I tell you, I just feel for a lot of these small business owners that are just up against it. Me too. All right. And thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. Simi's good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot of talk right now about how Canada needs to update and renew its Indo-Pacific strategy. Well, what is that, you might ask? Well, it's how Canada deals with and approaches issues in the Pacific region, where we do have to deal with countries like China and cooperate with others like Australia and Japan. So how do we plan for all of that? Well, the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of National Defence is actually going to be in Esquimalt today to welcome home hundreds of Canadian sailors who've been in that region for the last few months. It's a good time to talk about what it is that we are doing there. So joining us now to talk about that is Mary-France Lalonde, who's the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of National Defence. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Why is this an important time to talk about this? Well, it's an important time because today I'm in the um, in, in Esquimalt uh, to welcome 500 sailors who have been deployed uh, for almost five months, a little longer than five months, and returning home uh, for the holiday season. And you know, as you mentioned, we have a commitment uh, in the presence of our missions. But today's for me, as the Parliamentary Secretary, is the joy of welcoming uh, our men and our women in uniform uh, who work hard day in and day out uh, to protect our country. And I always say, you know, and we have to say to them, uh, my message to them is to say they're, they're you know, a 
a thank you, a strong thank you for the sacrifice and the tireless, tireless work uh, that these brave men and women do for us um, uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Are we overdue, though, to talk about uh, what these missions should be accomplishing, what our goals are there? Well, so there's two aspects. So Operation Projection is Canada's ongoing naval uh, forward presence missions to promote peace and stability in support of, of the rule-based international order. So I would say that's a very important role that Canada and our Royal Canadian Navy uh, has had. And what they do is they regularly would conduct exercise, engagement. Uh, they will do port visits. And we do this in the coordinated efforts with our allies and our partners. Um, the other component of our role is uh, Operation Neon that is also at the same time um, during the deployment of the HMCS Vancouver. And, and, and the, this particular uh, operation, Op Neon, is, is Canada's contribution uh, to the coordination of multinational efforts to support the monitoring of the United Nations Security Council sanctions that is imposed against North Korea. Um, and that's a very important part of the role that our uh, sailors would do. What they do is they would observe and report uh, in the monitoring of the Taiwan Strait. Okay, so this is a cooperative mission then that Canadian sailors were on. What other countries were involved in this? Uh, so the uh, the operation with our partners, uh, the first one, uh, Operation Projection, uh, we would be working with uh, Japan, we would be working with uh, Australia, the United States of America, uh, and yeah, Australia, United States, um, Japan, New Zealand. Uh, so there's several um, countries that we have worked with and we're going to continue to work. Operation Neon is Canada's commitment and efforts of the observation and our reporting role uh, regarding the sanction. And we, uh, you know, the way that would be handle or bandage is definitely through a diplomatic core. Okay. What about renewing our, our fleet? I know there's a lot of questions about our military infrastructure, things that need upgrading. Are we working on that? We definitely are working on that. I was in Halifax, uh, uh, not too long ago, actually, and a time right now with uh, the end of our session and our 30 hours of voting marathon, I would say, you know, uh, this was, uh, but we are. So there is, uh, we were, I was in Halifax with the minister where we saw the great work uh, of our investment uh, in helping support uh, our, our cast members. And, and certainly uh, I had the pleasure of being uh, welcomed uh, on uh, a new vessel that will be uh, actually departing, and I won't uh, go into too much detail, but departing uh, after the controls and everything is done, uh, the Max Bernie, and it would be coming actually to this region. It's going to come uh, here in Victoria, and I had the wonderful opportunity to meet with uh, the EXO and a few of the, the, the sailors that were on ship and seeing a firsthand investment uh, in, in, our, in, in our ability uh, with the Royal Canadian Navy. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking to us this morning. 
No, thank you very much for welcoming me. Happy holiday. Same to you. That is Marie Francelon, Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of National Defence. This is Mornings with Simi. It was a very big deal back in 2015 when the Vancouver Art Gallery announced a donation of 10 oil sketches that were attributed to G.E.H. McDonald. But right away, from that very moment, there were questions about the authenticity of those sketches. And it has taken all of these years until now for the Vancouver Art Gallery to say, hey, you know what? You're right. These were not authentic. So how did all of this happen? It's quite the story, actually. So we thought, let's get it in detail from the person who knows. Richard Hill is with us, the Canadian art curator for the Vancouver Art Gallery. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. First of all, can you tell us what is so significant about oil sketches uh, from that particular artist? Um, well, all of, uh, you know, J.H. McDonald is a founding member of the Group of Seven, and all of those painters were really interested in color. And so when they out, went out to sketch, um, they sometimes drew in pencil, and that's a picture people have in their head of what a sketch is, but actually these um, artists uh, painted in oil in the field, and um, a lot of people who are admirers of the Group of Seven um, really think the sketches are special. Some people even like them more than the finished paintings just because they're so um, fresh and, and colorful. Um, and so, um, you know, when we thought we had uh, 10 J.H. McDonald sketches, of course, we were um, very excited. Well, sure. Yeah. So how was it that they had come to the Vancouver Art Gallery? Where had they been all those years? Um, we, we were gifted them um, uh, by a, a collector from Toronto. Okay, and so what was the authentication pr- process like? Uh, well, it had many um, stages, and uh, the first stage, of course, was when it initially came into the gallery, and our uh, curator of Canadian art at the time um, examined them and thought that they were authentic, um, but because uh, he wanted to be extra careful and because they hadn't been known before, he brought in another uh, curator, Dennis Reed, who had been um, curator of Canadian art at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and uh, you know one of the leading experts on the Group of Seven in Canada. And he came in, and he also thought they looked uh, fine. And so we went ahead. Um, and then when more serious questions were raised, again, when, when we um, revealed them to the public, um, then there was a whole process of uh, bringing in additional experts. Charlie Hill, uh, former c- curator of Canadian art from the National Gallery, came in and raised some pretty serious questions from an art historical point of view. Um, There are inscriptions on the back of the paintings uh, that are, uh, you know, making a claim for their authenticity. And uh, so we sent those to a forensic handwriting uh, specialist who uh, was retired from uh, the forensic lab at the RCMP. And he looked at them and he said uh, that of the 16 inscriptions on the back, only one of them uh, seemed to be a likely match for the known handwriting of the people who uh, supposedly made those inscriptions. And then lastly, and most importantly, we sent them to, or most definitively at least, we sent them to the Canadian Conservation Institute in um, in Ottawa. And um, those uh, conservation scientists there were able to prove conclusively that eight of the works have uh, pigments in them that were not available in J.H. McDonald's lifetime, and so therefore he could not possibly have painted them. I guess, Richard, I have to ask, why wasn't any of that done before? It, it was done, <laughs> um, and so um, it, it, was, 
it all uh, happened from the outset. And, um, and those reports came in. Um, to be honest, I don't know why, um, you know, what, but basically I'll, I'll tell it as a story. When I, when I got here two years ago, um, we had a new director, Anthony Kindle, uh, who had been here for, uh, I'm not sure it was even a year at that point. And immediately um, he took me aside and said, you know, we have a, an issue with these works and I feel like the, it's important to do the right thing and uh, make public what we know about them. And, uh, you know, would you? <laughs> he didn't quite ask me. I, I volunteered because I know it's my, uh, as a curator of Canadian art, obviously it would be my duty to do that exhibition. And I kind of took it on as a bit of a, you know, at first out of a sense of duty, but as I started to dig into the research that had been done and really saw how fascinating it was, uh, I just thought, well, you know, this is actually going to be a, a really interesting exhibition. And so we brought all of that and you really get to see um, behind the curtain in terms right. of how we do what we do. Has this changed the processes at the Vancouver Art Gallery then? Would you say, okay, in the future, we, we have to make sure we do this kind of due diligence ahead of time? Um, to be honest, I'm not sure we could afford to operate if we were doing scientific testing of every single work that came in here. We have to make a judgment about when that's appropriate. Um, I, you know, and so uh, I'd like to think if something like this happened again, we would we would uh, for sure catch it. Um, but you know, it's a <laughs> human beings make mistakes. This is an institution of of, uh, you know, of people who are very dedicated and very passionate. You'll see that in the show if you, uh, you know, we have interviews with a lot of people involved and you can really see how much they care about art and care about getting it right and, and in some cases feel bad about having gotten it wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I would almost knock wood before I'd say it could never happen again, but right. I think uh, you always be very cautious and every curator lives a little bit in fear of, uh you know, of uh, getting into a kind of situation like this. But it is very rare, actually, that something like this happens. So, so the fact that you're putting on a show about this, which I find fascinating on that, I, that doesn't seem like that happened very often, right? Is it, isn't it? it usual that people don't want to think about the mistakes that they've made? And here you are putting it on display, right? You're talking about this. Yeah, a lot of people have mentioned this, and I, I, this will sound strange, possibly, but I didn't really think about it that way. I just... Um, I. I as a curator, you're always trying to find a new way to think about something or a new, you know, a, a new approach. And this just seemed like a really interesting curatorial problem to me. How do we, you know, deal with all this information um, and spare people, you know, the amount of slogging through reports and things like that that I did, but still get that information to them in a really accessible and uh, and I hope interesting way. And that's that's really how I saw it. Okay, so where can people come to see this? Come to the Vancouver Art Gallery. <laughs> And uh, it's it's right there on the first floor. Okay. And so how long will it be there for? Uh, it's up until May. Okay. So you know what? This is a new thing. I, I think I'd love to come and check this out. So Richard, thanks for talking to us about it. Absolutely. Just uh, give me a call and uh, give you a tour. Oh, I would love that. All right. I'm going to take you up on that, Richard. Thank you.